Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support the show, please head over to the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. All right, now on to the next topic. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizer's Breakthrough Magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for powering over 300 critical reactions, including detoxification, fat metabolism, energy, even digestion is influenced by the presence of magnesium. It has been estimated that up to 80% of the population may be deficient in magnesium. Often, people don't recognize that there are at least seven types of magnesium. Most magnesium supplements contain one or two forms of these seven types. Bioptimizers has formulated their magnesium supplement to contain all seven forms of magnesium. Breakthrough Magnesium has a select packages available for up to 40% off when combined with our custom 10% discount code, which will be activated by entering the coupon code HUMAN10 when you head over to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. All links and codes will be included in the show notes. Now, on to the next topic. All right, we are up. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast. And uh, I've got a guest here today who actually has been on the podcast technically before, but we had some some technical difficulties and we actually lost the recording, unfortunately. Um, We've had that happen maybe, I think, twice now after... 200 episode 220 if i'm not mistaken so it's kind of a reality of this to a degree i feel bad that when it happens because it's it's usually not the fault of the guest and then um sometimes they come back and re-record sometimes they can't but uh uh, today we have cynthia and cynthia is exciting for a variety of reasons um one of them to me is i'm always fascinated in folks that are doing sports and athletic stuff but if if it's at a high level it's just one more thing to kind of add to the excitement. And I also really do take interest in things that are kind of on the polar opposite of what I do from an athletic standpoint. And, and Cynthia definitely kind of fits that role to degree being, being a sprinter, uh, a little bit more strength, strength, a little bit more power uh, type of an athlete. So I'm excited to, to chat with her about some of her training, some of her nutrition, her re- racing results and things like that as we dive into this thing. So uh, Cynthia, uh, welcome to HPO podcast. Thank you so much for having me again. I will come as many times as you want me to be here to be your guest. <laughs> awesome. Well, don't, don't, don't be too, uh, too generous with your time or you'll get an email from me next week saying, Hey, you want to come on? for <laughs> No, that's, uh, that's great. No, I think it's, uh, it's always fun to chat about this stuff and we, we probably could 
take any one topic today and do a full show about it. So uh, I'm, I'll be uh, very, very excited to see what the listeners think about kind of your story and just kind of how you got to where you got as well as kind of what you do to, to stay doing what you're doing. Um, you know, I've got a, a couple a couple topics I think are interesting that our listeners will like, and I'm sure you'll probably surprise me with some extra stuff too. Uh, but before we kind of get into some of the stuff that I wanted to ask about, do you mind just kind of giving our listeners a bit of a background about kind of who you are, what you're up to, and uh, you know that that sort of stuff, a little bit of a background? Sure. Um, thank you. I uh, I live in Maui, which is why I always wear a flower in my hair to represent my islands. So in case anyone's wondering. Um, so I live in Maui and I'm 44. I'll be 45 in just a couple of months in February. Uh, and I'm basically a cross between just your typical mom of three and a world champion. <laughs> so I'll explain that. Um, I did run track in college. I ran division one in North Carolina. And um, I, about four years ago or so, my daughter, who was at the time 11, asked me to train her for the 400 meters. Now, I had not stepped foot on a track in over 20 years since college. Uh, that was it for me. I didn't extend my, my training after that. And um, I had started lifting weights a little bit in my 30s, but I didn't run at all. And so I said, okay, well, let's go up to the track and see what we got. So we ran one 400 meters. It was about a minute and 30 seconds, which is not very fast. And um, we crawled across the finish line. It was probably the hardest 400 meters of my life and decided to start training from there. And um, so little by little, I, I kind of got a little bit back into shape. I was about 30 pounds heavier than I am now. And at one point I decided, okay, I want to become a world champion. And I went to uh, the strength coach, Charles Polican. He was my mentor. I actually ended up uh, being in close contact with him almost on a daily basis at one point uh, right before he passed. But uh, he really, really took me under his wing and taught me uh, just pretty much everything that I get to share with others now about how to optimize yourself for your best performance. So I ended up fast forward. I, the first meet I went into in Masters, I got a fourth place ribbon. And I should have been pleased with that, but I was not pleased with that. Um, so I, I said, I'm never going to get a ribbon again, and I'm going to be a national champion next year. That was at the national championships. I got the fourth place ribbon in the 400. And so the next year, I became national champion indoors and outdoors in the 400 and the 200, and also the 4x1 and 4x4 relays, in which we also set records, I believe, that year as well. Um, and then uh, fast forward, um, last year, I became world champion in the 400. And so uh, I ran that race faster than I, my best performance, uh, indoor performance, because it was uh, the indoor championship uh, 22 years ago in college. So I guess my story is to, my passion is to help others thrive. I'm a metabolics analytics, metabolic analytics practitioner. So I help people uh, figure out individually what they can eat and maybe what supplements they could take um, and how they should train and all different lifestyle things that they can individually do to bring themselves to the superhero status, as I call, of um, what I was able to achieve, which was, I think, kind of changing my genetic expression. So I had a certain set of genes that allowed me to peak in my 20s, but I went beyond that by peaking even further in my 40s, if that makes sense. So I think that everybody's capable of changing their environment whether it be through nutrition or lifestyle in order to achieve this really superhuman superhero optimal level. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, that's an awesome, an awesome story. And I think one of the things I want to start with is just kind of that, a little bit about that gap between collegiate athletics at the division one level towards becoming essentially a professional athlete. Um, almost, I think you said 20 years later, uh, because when I think of like age group, uh, age group world records at the age that you set it at that kind of 40 to 44 age. Um, the first thing I think of is like, okay, that's probably someone who competed at college, probably had a professional sprinting career, and then eventually got maybe a little older than what you're going to typically see at like the Olympic level or something like that. So then they just, you know, still love the sport, still love to do this, the lifestyle and thought, okay, well now I'm going to chase these age group categories and things like that. Um, but, you know, being like a, an endurance athlete myself and getting to know other professional athletes, sometimes that's not always the trajectory because you're so just beaten down from that being kind of such a focal point of your life. By the time you get to like age 40, you just want to be done with it. And it's like thinking of another chapter to a career is kind of just like a little more daunting, or maybe you've worn yourself out mentally on just like the, the, the wear and tear of the lifestyle that is, you know, being a sprinting athlete like yourself. So do you think like there was either like a physical or mental like preservation by taking that time off? Or do you think like, had you decided to be like after college, I'm going to stick with this. Would you be running even faster now? (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. Mm, That's a long and okay. I'll try to be kind of a subjective question. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, but I totally, um, I'm right in tune with what you're saying because what happens is especially for the 40 to 44 age group, um, we don't, we barely ever see at the 400 meters and less, I would say, uh, professional athletes. Now, the 800 meters, if you just go up one more event, it's a different story. Those ladies are running fast. And I guess what it comes down to is the older you get, the less speed you have. And so it's, in my opinion, and the science backs it up, that it's easier to continue to run and to uh, maybe run that fast if you're running further distance. But I think the 400 meters down is another story. Um, Now, that being said, we hardly ever, ever, ever see the elites in in the master's track at that uh, level because like you said, they maybe have just finished their career and they've, you know, they've gone with their whole lives centered around track and I think they just need a break. Um, Sometimes they come back at later age groups um, and uh, tra- USA Track and Field is trying to encourage younger people who are not necessarily at the uh, number one in the world elite level to continue running in their 20s as well. But um, do, do I think my break helped me or hurt me? Well, I'm not really sure. I don't think it necessarily, I think it, it could have been okay for me to run through that break if I had the knowledge then that I do now. So I think it really comes down to what am I fueling myself with? What is my lifestyle like? What am I surrounding myself with my, in my environment? So if I had just continued on with what I knew in my 20s, absolutely not. I would have ended up injured, um, you know, definitely exhausted. Uh, all kinds of things would have gone on. Um, I would not have been running as fast. And so I think that um, the break was what it was. I had three kids. So does that give me an advantage? Um, no. There are some studies that say maybe for distance running, uh, there is an advantage to having children for women. But for sprinters, no, there's not an advantage. I had 30 pounds more of weight 
on me when I had my last, after my last child, which I was happy about because that's what I used to feed my child. And I always encourage women who are athletes and have children like, Hey, don't, don't try to diet that weight off. You need that to feed your child if you're breastfeeding. So, um, you know, I was at the point where I would just gotten done breastfeeding and I had this extra weight. I definitely was not, you know, didn't have my cells having clear communication like I do now. And those, that clear communication, it comes from what I've learned basically, mostly from Charles, I would say. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think it, it's, it's just interesting to think about that too. Cause I think like athletes that do kind of follow that path where they competed in like the high school level, the collegiate level professionally, and then either push their professional career, like well past the average range age or kind of start entering like the master's division and focus their energies on that. It seems like following their trajectory through the sport, there's like, there's differences. It's they're not doing the same thing that they did in college when they're in their forties. And I think that probably carries over from a nutritional standpoint, as much as even a training methodology standpoint too. And I think in, in the endurance world, it's like, I I think, uh, I think it was Meb said like the biggest change he made from being a master's athlete or, you know, in his late thirties from an early in his career is like he switched from a seven day training cycle where he'd be trying to hit like these specific workouts in a seven day window and then kind of rinse and repeat. He would start doing it at like a nine day cycle. So he basically changed his week Mm -hmm. from a seven, seven day week to a nine day week. And that just gave him that extra recovery time between some of those key sessions. And he was able to kind of push his career back a little bit. Um, So like, what are some of the things that you are maybe doing differently in, in training uh, and then we can get to nutrition after, but what are you doing differently in training now than you would have done back in college? Um, well, uh, I have to say that I am definitely blessed to have Malcolm William from Source Performance, who's uh, right near you in Phoenix. Um, and uh, he is also one of Charles's top, top students. So coming down from that line of, um, of teaching, he uh, has been my strength coach for a couple of years. And I think having that really... Um, individualized and optimal strength program under him has helped me, um, you know, maybe fix some imbalances that I've had and that I would not have known about in college or think something like that. But um, as far so I really, really appreciate the, the strength coaching aspect. And um, that is a big part of what I do now, because as I, as we age, we lose muscle mass. So it's extremely important through nutrition and training to keep that muscle mass up, especially for sprinters. Uh, so, in addition to that, my track coach um, has me training three days a week. So I actually, people th- assume uh, they see me and they see how lean I am and how, you know, maybe my muscle, my muscles and they think, okay, well you must train every day. And I'm like, Oh, definitely not. <laughs> so I, he has me training three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And those, I also lift that day. So I train in the morning and I lift in the evening and then I have a whole day rest in between. So um, I'm getting extra recovery. And I find that as, uh, as I get older, that really works for me. Mm -hmm. So having that extra, extra recovery. And then you you can ask me specific questions if you want about how I do my training. Yeah, no, I think that'd be great. I think let's start with the, the, the strength training stuff. Cause I think one thing I find really interesting, even in the endurance world, like when I plan, if I just planned out like a running training schedule and asked one of my coaching clients, okay, where would you put strength training in here? they're going to look at the schedule and like, Oh, there's a rest day. I'll put it there. Or, you know, there's an easy day. I'll put it there because they're thinking like trying to 
account for like a balance across this course of maybe seven days or a training plan or whatever the time frame may be. And usually I redirect them and I'm thinking, okay, s- strength training is going to be mostly intense work. So like you want to actually position that on the same day that you're maybe going to be doing something a little more intense on your workouts. So like if I'm programming, say a short interval session um, of say two to four minutes or something like that for per rep, I might have them do their deadlifts and their squats and kettlebell swings and that sort of stuff on that same day, if they can manage it on their schedule, because then they're kind of keeping their, their more high intensity, more power-based type uh, workouts on one day. And then they do have that easy day where we can focus primarily on recovery versus kind of that breakdown side of things. And it sounds like that's kind of the angle you're going with your coach too, where you go really hard on the days you go hard, but then it's like, when it's time to rest, that is the primary focus. I'm not going to, you know, introduce another stress or another like kind of physical breakdown thing when my body's trying to do the opposite. Correct. And I've tried it uh, uh, the other way where I run one day, lift another day, and it doesn't work for me. I definitely feel like I'm not recovered as much. Um, So I I totally agree with that. Like what you said with the intensity. And uh, the only thing I would like to specify is that it is really important um, to have your strength training and your running four to six hours apart. Now that's just my opinion and it's what I've seen work with my clients. So I work with Olympians and professional athletes as my clients for my metabolic clients. Um, uh, So things like that. And also not icing right afterwards for four to six hours, you know, because we need time for that inflammation to repair the muscles to be stronger. So um, I think a lot of people, and maybe I've seen a lot of collegiate programs um, really have their like their sprinters lifting and then they go and sprint and I'm like oh I don't know for me that just seems like a recipe for injury now I mean you know that could be hotly debated amongst coaches Uh, as we all know we all have different strategies as coaches but I've seen that it works the best with four to six hours apart so I'm running um, in the morning and that's another thing is time of day for performance I'd love to talk to you about your opinions about that for me I run best after my you know, my cortisol has woken me up and then it drops. My testosterone goes up as a result. And so that's the time of time period that works best for me for running and uh, hitting my times and such. Now I do that at eight in the morning and then I don't strength train until about five or six in the evening. Mm-hmm. So that's a quite a, quite a long gap in between where I think others might try to, you know, put it in the same, in the same workout. Just get it all done. Yeah. It, I think, yeah. uh, you know, when I think about that, the first thing that comes to my mind is when you're doing a sport like you're doing, like it's, it's not like I could go out for a run where I'm focusing on say like 65% of my max heart rate. And I can probably execute that with sore legs without too much trouble. But if you ask me to go to the track and start ripping like hundred meter sprints, 200 meter sprints and that sort of stuff, uh, I want to be probably at full capacity. So my thought would be like, the, the more time you can get between sessions, probably the better, as long as you're hitting the, the, the volume and the reps that you're trying to aim in, in, in terms of making that kind of that stress response st- stimulus to, to get stronger and better. But like, I would think like from a, if you're trying to like execute both those workouts, the strength workout, and then the sprinting workout, you would probably want to have them further away versus trying to pile them on top of one another and potentially have like the sprinting effect negatively affect how much you can do in the weight room or vice versa. Um, exactly. And it's, it's almost similar, I think, because endurance sport, one of the interesting kind of 
I wouldn't say it's as much of a debate, although it probably is in some corner of the internet that I haven't paid attention to as much yet. But uh, there's like a, a concept of like this kind of like hard, easy, hard uh, strategy that you see in a lot of collegiate programs where like maybe you do like easy aerobic work on Monday and then Tuesday you do short intervals and easy aerobic work Wednesday and then like tempo or threshold work on Thursday and then like long run on Saturday or Sunday or something like that. And you kind of just go hard, easy, hard. In, and then you just kind of gradually continue to stress those systems until you get fit. And then there's like another strategy where they call it like blocking, where you might do like a hard day on Monday and then another hard day on Tuesday and then take an easy day or two after that. And really the, where it ends up going is the science, I guess, or the research shows that the blocking can give you a little bit of extra performance benefit but it's also riskier because like you said, like if you could do a hard workout and then go the next day and try it again, your risk of injury goes up too. So if you get hurt and then can't train for three weeks, all those performance benefits that you maybe got out from blocking are out the window. Um, so then it just comes down to the individual athlete. Like if I'm working with someone who's new, I'm definitely not going to block because they don't even have experience hardly with the workouts, much less doing them back to back like that. Whereas mm-hmm. if I'm working with, you know, someone like my wife, who's been running endurance for, you know, 20 years plus, you know, she can probably block them a little easier just because she's gone through those cycles. We know how her, we have a much better grasp of her risk of injury in general and what things are typically going to potentially be higher risk and lower risk and things like that. And she um, probably needs that stimulus at this point because of her, uh, you know, in strength uh, coaching, we call that the training age. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I did end up getting my strength coach certification as well, although I love to have my own coach. So, um, but yeah, I do coach as well. Strength coach. I have wrestlers. Um, my husband and I had the number one female high school wrestler in the nation last year. He coached her in wrestling. I did her strength coaching and metabolics. So, um, well, we can talk about what she eats before wrestling matches too, when we get into nutrition, but it was the same type of thing. Um, you know, when you get to a certain point with strength, with training, you need to increase the stimulus and the blocking would be a, a great way to do that if you are young. However, as we age with the master's athletes, I think it's a different story. I think you really need that recovery time. And, um, I, yeah, I just think that's definitely a factor because, you know, unfortunately, this is going to sound harsh, but after age 40, we really weren't meant to live much longer as humans. And it wasn't up until recently, the past couple of hundred years, that we really have been living past age 40. And I think people forget that. And they just take for granted that we're supposed to be living past reproductive age and we're entitled to it. But if you look at, at history and the science, we're not exactly entitled to it. And so that's why we have to find all these different ways to increase our longevity, but not only increase our longevity, but increase our quality of life because nobody wants 10 extra years if you're just going to be incapacitated and laying in a bed. So I think that's what you and I are after with, uh, you know, your HPO podcast is how can we increase our longevity and quality of life? Um, so I think that, yeah, that, that, that blocking sounds really awesome. But I think, you know, as we get older, your master's age, you need to definitely uh, consider the recovery, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And really, the, I think the benefits for it are definitely going to fall in the poten- potentially fall in the performance side versus the longevity side of doing that, that sort of stuff. But um, and like, blo- I, don't, I don't know if you'd even consider it blocking for what you're doing because you're doing it on the same day versus blocking for like endurance would just be one workout one day and another workout the next day. That's just a little more specific. Whereas I would still, and not necessarily consider it blocking, uh, 
do like a hard workout in the morning and then the strength work in the evening kind of a scenario when I'm talking strength work coupled with the running workout side of stuff. So that I think that like, that's exactly how I at least initially program someone's stuff with. And then, you know, there's individual stuff, which I think is the most interesting part about sport too. And, you know, I do have some clients that do like to do their lower leg stuff on, on their easy days. And it doesn't seem to affect their workouts negatively. And it's, you know, if they're not getting hurt and they're putting up results, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, well, let's focus on something that's going to drive forward versus potentially make a change that doesn't do anything or change something that's working kind of a mindset, but that's definitely the minority. Most of the folks tend to do better with that structure that, that you have set up. I think, um, there was yeah, one. Other- it's, that's what it's important um, to realize is that it, it is sometimes it is individual. And as a coach, you have to recognize what type of athlete you have and um, play up to those to what works for them. And so you could probably really investigate why that's working for them uh, with their central nervous system and all kinds of things, but we won't get into that. But I think that, yeah, <laughs> as a coach, you gotta, you gotta really, you know, just pay attention to your athletes and, and yourself and see what is working for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think like the, sometimes it's just scheduling too. Cause it's like a lot of the folks I work with are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're working, you know, a day job, they have family, kids and all that stuff. So like, they have like all these other things pulling for their attention and their time. And it's like, you know, they, they might send me a, a schedule like, well, it looks like there's 60 minutes on this day available. And it's like, it's not as convenient as, as other schedules. And yeah, that's the other fun thing of working with. No. Yeah. I don't know how you like, yeah, for me, I, I definitely, I think the athletes that I train, I am very particular in making sure that they're prioritizing everything they're doing. So if they're a high school athlete and they're going for a state championship, they're not, they don't have a job. They're not working. Mm -hmm. They find other ways to support themselves or their family and that sort of thing. Like we, we really focus on prioritizing what's important. So, yeah. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned too, with recovery that I find an interesting topic. And I think I see this mistake being made. I wouldn't say very often, but often within the folks who are aware of it as even a tool is like kind of the ice baths or the, the, that sort of stuff. Cause it, you know, inflammation gets a negative rap and it, should from the chronic sense, I suppose, but in terms of inflammation induced from a heavy workout, that's what you want your body to do. And the ice bath is going to probably blunt that inflammation. So for folks paying attention and they're wondering like when to use an ice bath versus when not to, like my advice, I'd be curious what yours would be is if you are going to block your workouts or potentially do like what Cynthia was saying, like a sprint workout in the morning and weights in the afternoon, you might want to ice after um, that first workout to get you to the second workout without too much inflammation. Cause that's, what's going to create that stiffness in your legs. But eventually when you get around to that point where you're focusing on recovery, you want that inflammation to move in and do its job versus kind of blunt or, uh, you know, put pause on that. Cause a lot of times I see folks, they'll do like, you know, they'll do a bunch of hard work And then the next day when they're supposed to be recovering, they're recovering, but they're also doing these little hacks like ice baths and things like that. When in reality, I think when you have the time to recover built into your schedule, wait, or don't, don't use the ice baths for that. (laughs) Maybe some mobility or something like that, but I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Actually. Um, I am anti icing at all after training. So like I said, within four to six hours, no, if it's four hours later in between the training blocks, if you really need to, yes. Um, That being said, I never do anymore. Um, I did 
when I first started running, I had a little bit of a, um, it, like a left hand string, not a strain, but sort of like a tendonitis type thing. And I used to ice every day after I ran. And then Charles was like, you know, told me, no, that's not, you know, taught me about that. And so as soon as I stopped icing after I ran, my injury went away. Um, I stopped icing and I stopped static stretching. Those are the two things I did years ago um, that I definitely would love to pass along to others. Icing and static stretching. Static stretching before you're, you're running, definitely not beneficial, especially for sprinters. Um, static stretching after, no, definitely not. And no icing right after. Um, but I, do, I am a fan of the ice bath. Uh, I know it's a, another hotly debated issue as far as does it really work or is it placebo? I do think that it works. Um, when I asked Charles about it, he told me that it boosts testosterone, but to do it maybe 36 hours before competition. And I believe that is because of the circadian rhythms of cortisol and testosterone. So you want that testosterone boost right at the right time. Um, so I definitely believe in ice baths, but I think that um, they're they don't need to be done right after training, not after strength training, not after uh, a heavy running workout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. So it seems like a lot of these things, they're never like all good or all bad, but they're just timing. They're like doing it at the right yes. time and structuring it properly is the name of the game. And, and it, it's unfortunate, but like with all these, we just have such access to information now, like you almost to a degree have to dumb some stuff down in, in terms of getting the message out about things. So then sometimes I think that, that more like abbreviated message gets kind of confusing to someone who's not going to take that message and then dig deeper, but rather take that message and just kind of implement it in a variety of different ways, some good and some bad. And then they kind of lose some of that value from, from properly implementing it. I totally agree. And a, a classic case of that is the carb loading, right? Yeah. That's one, something, a study that was done what years ago and nobody does carb loading the way that first, uh, the first scientists recommended it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, with the, they were supposed to not train all week, the week before, um, you know, and they, they cut carbs, right? A week. Do you know, are you familiar with that study? Yeah, I don't know if like you all week, have talked about it before. But. If, if it's, if I remember right, it's like a week long process almost where you cut the carbs out for like five, four, seven, four to five exactly. days. Mm -hmm. And don't train. That's mm -hmm. the part that everyone misses. You're not supposed to do any training. And then you're supposed to carb load the night before. But then this is, of course, for carb-adapted athletes, um, you know, mm -hmm. optimal for them. But I think that's one thing where, uh, you know, people now, what, they just you go to marathons and you see, like, you know, uh, jars of candy and, you know, the pasta parties and that sort of thing. And it's something that uh, one piece of advice got misconstrued. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Fastic. Fastic is a free online phone app that helps you set up and structure the right fasting and or intermittent fasting program that is best for you based on your preferences and experience level. The Fastic team has 25 years of fasting experience and has created a platform that helps you stay on track with notifications reminders, and allows you to give and receive support from other users. You can also upgrade from the free trial to unlock things like food and drink plans that are right for you and educational support to help you understand how and why fasting works. Head over to your app store and download Fastic, that's F-A-S-T-I-C, and check it out. Or head to their website at fastic.com. Links to all of this can be found in the show notes. Now back to the show. Um, 
Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it, it, you're right. I think what ended up happening was people grasped the carb load the night before thing and did all the pasta dinners and stuff, but they did plenty of carb loading the six days before that. So they probably right. arrived at the pasta dinner with full glycogen stores on top of exactly. it. Exactly. And, and it's like, <laughs> then we wonder why we need 4,000 porter potties on a marathon course. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I see, I, unfortunately, I still see it being done in collegiate programs today. Mm-hmm. The pasta parties the night before a track meet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think just in general, it's interesting that like, um, and I mean, I've made this mistake before too, where like you have kind of, you know, as, as athletes and uh, like when you, when you, when you dial in a training program or you pay someone to make a training program for you, you're kind of starting to take it seriously. And what I see a lot of times is people will, they'll start taking other things seriously too, because now they want to dial in nutrition because they've got this other, this other, like the training side of things dialed in. And they're doing, they get in a routine or they find things that work with them. So they got like particular meals they enjoy at certain times and they get that in the rotation. And then they get to like the week or the days before the event and they start eating stuff that they haven't eaten in in like weeks or months. And it just, it's like throwing a huge wrench into the system in the sense that they're just not used to having that sort of stuff. And then they have a bunch of it, or if they have had it, maybe they have it in like extreme quantities relative to the output that they've been doing during a taper. And then it's just backfires on them the next day when their, their body's still probably trying to process a lot of that stuff. I totally agree. I see that all the time. Um, and with, I mean, a lot of that too, if you're competing, um, then it comes with, where are you competing? So are you traveling to Europe? Are you traveling to a different continent? What kind of food is available? So with my Olympians, when they travel to world championships, so that sort of thing, I always remind them uh, to control their environment the best they can. Um, so for instance, one of my athletes had to compete at midnight in Doha. And so I had her a couple of nights before running sprints in her hallway of her hotel to, uh, so her body could remember that she was supposed to be running at that time of night. Um, now with the time change, it wasn't, it's not as bad as it sounds being at midnight. Right. So it was actually like probably 12 noon for her, her time, something like that. Um, but, uh, but uh, besides that, you know, she asked me, okay, well, you know, they're giving out these bento boxes. Um, one of them's fish and something else. And one of them's chicken and blah, blah, blah. And she's describing this. And I was like, what are you saying to me right now? You are not going to eat one of those. I had her, uh, we can get more into this, but she's, she uh, definitely is, um, we'll call this a steak adapted athlete like myself. And so she was uh, highly carnivorous. And we had, I usually try to tell my athletes to find a hotel restaurant that has a decent steak. And luckily she did. And that's what she had been eating was from this restaurant that she trusted. And I said, okay, screw those boxes. You are not getting one of those boxes. You're getting, um, you know, steak from this restaurant, just like you have been, because you know that food, you trust that food. And why would you change your food on your competition day? This is the Mm -hmm. world championships, you know? So it's like, uh, but it, you know, there it's one, it's like, you just have to really pay attention to your environment. And I think that you're right. People just all of a sudden start eating things that they're not, whether they're, whether they're home or not, they start eating things they're not used to. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I remember seeing a story, I think it it was around one of the Olympic cycles and they were describing, it was this big story about how like a ton of these Olympic athletes just went over into the Olympic village and basically just ate McDonald's. And at first I'm like, how crazy is that? And then I started looking into it more and it was, it was more of a move that they were trying to standardize things. So they had been like, whether you're, I guess 
maybe the way to say whether you're someone like yourself that's like mostly carnivorous, you know, you could probably go to a McDonald's and, and just get some beef and kind of have an idea of what you're getting versus having like some like more like ethnic cuisine from the area that you haven't eaten in mm-hmm. ever maybe or in years and have that throw a wrench into your digestive system. Cause they were saying like after their events were finished, the, the amount of variety they were willing to take on was a lot, a lot bigger. They would, then they started trying some of the local stuff. But at that point, it's like, that's the time to do it when your event's over and you can, you're in off season mode and <laughs> you can exactly. be a little more exploratory. <laughs> exactly. I, I can totally see that happening. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's dive a bit into your kind of nutrition protocol. Cause I think a lot of times when people think of, uh, you know, when they think of any type of athlete, they think about like carbohydrate, they think about timing of carbohydrates. And in, in some cases, it's not a question of if it's a question of moderate or high carbohydrate. And when you look at the workouts you're doing and the races you're, you're winning and competing at, uh, they think there's gotta be some, some Gatorade in there somewhere. Right. And then you tell your story and, turns out there's not. So why don't you give us a little bit of a lowdown on kind of what does your nutrition protocol look like uh, on kind of a, a normal training week? And then like, how do you use that kind of come competition time as well? Okay, great. Yeah. Um, I love that. That's how you put that because the whole myth that athletes need to be carbohydrate fueled needs to die. That needs to just go away. And um, Whenever anyone would take a a seminar with Charles, he would ask who was trained as a sports nutritionist or who had a nutrition degree and whoever would raise their hand, he would say, either forget everything you learned or leave. (laughs) Because uh, basically, it's in my opinion, and this is going to be a pretty strong statement probably, but um, the nutrition programs that are mainstream, that are promoting carbohydrates as fuel, say your schools that push Gatorade, Powerade, whatever it may be, um, they are driven by, by monetary reasons. And I'll tell you a short story about that. One of my clients um, who's training for the Olympics went to a very prestigious university and um, he actually has the school record for that university for what he does for his sport. Um, but he said, you know, I thought something was fishy or up with the nutritionist when the head nutritionist for our school, who now also oversees all of the the professors who teach nutrition, um, told us that we need to be eating Pop-Tarts. Okay, so he said, I just felt like in my my instinct that the Pop-Tarts were not necessarily what was healthiest for us, but she was on the board for Kellogg's. So unfortunately, this is how things are decided sometimes. And I think that the more we realize Uh, And I think this year, a lot of people's eyes have opened up to the fact that maybe the experts in the mainstream media are not necessarily telling us the truth or that they have a skewed um, presentation of things according to what's driving them monetarily. But that being said, um, I think a lot of what's being taught for carbohydrate fueling is coming down from these companies. And I see that with training Olympians and training professional athletes who have sponsors that are basically carbohydrate companies. So Um, Okay, so cutting through all of that, uh, once you start to realize that that's not the optimal fuel, then you can make adjustments. And what I did um, initially and what I learned is that if you can decrease the body fat percentage of your athlete, they're going to have a higher performance. In my uh, area as a metabolic analytics practitioner, my athletes, female athletes, no matter the age, should be between 12 and 15 percent body fat for optimal athletic performance. And the male should be between six and 10%. 
This has been my experience. Um, it can be debated, but that's what's 100% of the time worked and has produced results. To get to that point, um, a paleo, ketogenic, carnivorous type diet has worked the best. And it's worked the best because it's also nutrient dense and you're um, minimizing inflammation, um, inflammation from plants, you're minimizing um, inflammation from junk food, of course, and that sort of thing, but you're also increasing the protein, you're increasing the nutrients, and so your athletes are gonna have a better, better performance. And of course, I'm a case in point of that. Um, and what, that's one of the reasons why I'm able to perform at such a high level at my age. And I did wanna add one more thing about that. Um, when we were talking about the type of athlete in the 40 to 44 age group, what I have also noticed is that um, I, like for instance, in college, I was a, a pretty decent division one athlete, but I never went to maybe the nationals. I didn't win my conference, that sort of thing. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't necessarily a top tier, you know, Olympic trial athlete, but some of the women I'm competing against are, so they're kind of cruising on their raw talent and not doing the work, and they're getting slower every year. Well, I've been getting faster every year. Eventually, that's going to stop. But I think that's a good, a good indication of what nutrition and uh, what nutrition can do for you as far as performance. Um, so, skipping back to what I do, um, I'm mostly meat-based, but not 100% carnivore. I do also include nuts and berries, especially during the summer. I cycle carnivore in the winter months. Uh, especially around January and February. Um, I always love to tell the story that in February is my birthday and I usually have a championship meet coming up for indoors and there's no way I'm going to eat a big sugary birthday cake for my birthday. And why? I always say because I deserve better than that. I deserve not to feel like crap, not to have my muscles inflamed, and I deserve to have the best performance I can possibly give. And so in order to do that, um, I actually, my husband makes me a cake out of salmon. So he takes salmon, he makes, you know, mixes it with the egg and sometimes a little almond flour, depending on if I'm doing carnivore or not right then, but usually I am. So no almond flour. He makes the little cake and puts, puts it in a cake pan, uh, bakes it just like a salmon cake, and then he frosts it with goat cheese. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a great birthday cake for anyone who's really looking to treat themselves well on their birthday. Uh, so yeah, so I, I do cycle carnivore a lot in the winter. Um, but I keep my protein extremely high. I'd say, um, I try, I aim for, I'm 148 pounds. So I aim for about 200 grams of protein a day. And I usually get that at least. Um, my fat is usually around 70 to 150 grams, depending on where, what I'm cycling with my fat right then. And I keep my carbohydrates pretty low, definitely under 70 grams at the max. Um, so that's pretty much what it looks like now. I do rotate the meats. I, I'm a big believer in the meat and nuts breakfast, which was coined by Charles. And um, so I found that I run practices really well off of chicken and almonds, but I run races the best off of steak. So steak, red meat is a big part of my diet and it's usually grass-fed steak. Uh, we have a local Maui cattle company here and they are grass fed and they process here on the island. And as a result, it's very affordable. So I'm a huge proponent of them because they're, they're doing this regenerative agriculture type farming. They're trying to do sustainable farming for the island. And so that we don't have to ship in so much food. It's just a really, really great program. It's owned by Mahi Pono. Um, so Maui cattle company, they're awesome. So I'm really lucky to have that. And uh, yeah, so I eat a lot of steak, I guess you'd say. Um, I can give more specifics if you have more specific questions, but 
Uh, my favorite is definitely eating the steak before I race. Um, and I, I probably eat steak at least seven times a week. So, and I rotate mm -hmm. other, other meats and I generally don't eat pork. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting in the sense like that, especially, especially with your situation too, where you're doing like three pretty explosive days worth of workouts per week. And then you have those recovery days built in. And I always find this kind of interesting when you get to kind of that really high explosive type work where essentially there's a fairly finite number of like minutes that you can do or hours in a week you can really do before like, you know, your muscles break down, you need to recover from that. So like, since you're working that hard, uh, it makes it difficult to get to a point where you're probably almost ever like run your glycogen levels really low versus say somebody who's out kind of running a lot of miles at like a gray area zone that in theory, they could kind of deplete their muscle glycogen to the point where their body kind of puts a governor on it. And in, in a single workout, whereas you're probably never going to deplete your muscle glycogen in a single workout. And then with the rest day afterwards, there's really no reason from what I can tell that you would need a ton of carbohydrates to restock your, your liver muscle glycogen when you're doing high intensity stuff with a day off in between, uh, you know, your body can, that's kind of what your, your body's going to do that on its own with that time frame, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, I definitely think there's, um, my body regulates how much glucose and how much glycogen is in my muscles pretty efficiently. And it does it mostly, I've tried both ways. I've tried, uh, being a little more fat, inclu including a little more fat and less protein. And that definitely is not my cup of tea. It doesn't work for me. Um, so the protein is extremely important for that. But as far as depleting the glycogen, I mean, um, sometimes, you know, sprinters depleted after 10 seconds of hard running. So I think because I'm crossing from the ATP to the lac lactate, uh, you know, the lactose lactate threshold in every single workout I do, I mean, there definitely is a chance I am depleting my glycogen. But uh, the thing is that I think because I'm so fat and protein adaptive that I'm using that as fuel for the most part. So it's, I think what I, um, whatever, let's see what the podcast that you had with, uh, Dr. Paul Mason, was it? Mm, yeah. 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 I just, I uh, just watched that recently and, um, I thought it was really interesting how he was saying that there's such, so much more energy that comes from fat adaptive athletes. And I can feel that. And I can attest to that 100% because I feel way more energy, more longevity in my energy during my workouts. And as you know, like, I mean, of course, ultra endurance training is really, really hard, but 400 meter training is different from 200 meter training, say, and 800 meter training. It's one of the most exhaustive types of training that you can do. And not only that, but my coach is, um, I'm pretty sure he's, you know, hanging out with Satan sometimes <laughs> coming up with my workouts. And I, he knows, I can joke with him about that because he knows I say that all the time. Uh, for instance, we have a workout called 666 where we run a 600 at 90% and then wait eight minutes, run six times 200 with two minutes rest, and then another 600 at target 90%. So um, if you've run any of those distances at that percentage, it's, you feel like throwing up just hearing it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but we run workouts like that. Oh, sorry. Had a uh, sorry. There no worries. We just lost, lost your video there for a second. second. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, he, um, 
I think the other thing I forgot to mention about my training is that we run that type of workout quite a bit. So even though I do some short bursts of speed, we're running at um, maybe 600, 500, 400, 300 uh, intensity at 85 to 95% all three times during the week. So my training, I would never be able to train this intensely without getting injured if I didn't have that much protein and that carnitine and carnosine and taurine rebuilding my muscle tissues and all those nutrients that come from animal protein. That's mm -hmm. definitely my opinion about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, I mean, the, the workouts that I've done where I find myself ready to puke at the end tend not to be the ones that I'm doing for the events I'm training for <laughs> they tend, unless it gets like really hot out or something like that maybe. But like, um, I think like the, and so do you throw, do you throw up though? Do you actually throw up or do you just feel nauseous? I just, I, you know, I've never been like, I've always, I've had like teammates in the past, even in endurance sports where like they'll finish a race and just like puke. And like, uh, after workouts too, I've rare, I've never really had that problem. The, I think the only time I've actually puked in a workout or a race was I actually kind of, I, I screwed up essentially. I didn't bring enough water and I, I put in, I took, too many electrolytes, like these little capsules are basically just like sodium and some other like trace electrolytes. And, uh, like I, I, I just like puked those up. Cause I think I took in too many of them at once. Uh, but other than that, like, I just haven't really felt like I maybe maybe I just am, I think there's probably some, some individuality with that, but I'm yeah, also I, not I going to, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, the reason why I asked that is because it is my theory and from my experience with my clients and with myself that the more um, protein, animal protein, particularly red meat, but and more fat adaptive you are, the less uh, likely, the, well, the more you can buffer the lactic acid. And so I'm curious as to wondering if your, your eating strategies have a lot to do with that, because you, you are an outlier as far as your category of runners, because from what I know of a lot of uh, endurance runners and marathon runners even are very carbohydrate fueled. Um, and so I'm wondering, like the, the most carbohydrate fueled athletes I see are the ones that are really pounding the carbs or they're, you know, they're grabbing a banana or granola bar or whatever right before practice. And that's what they're fueling off of. Um, mm -hmm. So I feel like the ones that throw up the most are the ones that are eating the most carbohydrates, it seems to me. And, and I believe the studies that I've read, the more carbohydrates you eat, the more lactic acid you produce scientifically in your muscles. And on the contrary, um, one of the great reasons for eating steak before your, before your, um, your training or your race especially is because it's full of bioavailable carnosine and carnitine, but especially the carnosine buffers lactic acid. It buffers the hydrogen ions in the muscles, um, which in turn buffers the lactic acid. And so you're able to go longer at that, we you know, without crossing that threshold with that highly bioavailable carnosine. And it's something like 86% more bioavailable from beef than from a supplement. So it's just, I mean, the science points to it as the optimal fuel for, um, for running. Mm -hmm. and other sports athletics yeah of course yeah. i'm biased but i'm biased <laughs> because it works <laughs> well i mean that's just it it's like you know you you i think one of the most interesting things about your story is that like you looked at things and saw okay well this is what the recommendations are well those recommendations just simply aren't working for me so i've got an option of just saying well i can't do this 
or I can try something different and try to do something I love to do, or I want to try to achieve following a different, a different route. And I think like, if we could just get to that point, I would be satisfied enough. Like, I don't know that I don't feel like we, need, I, I actually don't think we necessarily need like a recommendation of any kind, like pigeonholed into like exactly right. what everyone. I agree do. with that. Yeah. Um, because if you're right, if you're Inuit from Alaska, then right. you're going to be, you know, running on primarily fat. So yeah, I totally agree. But I think, like you said, it needs like people's eyes need to be open to different strategies and give them a chance to work. I think one of the, the worst parts of, are these studies um, that have people, you know, trying keto for three weeks or two weeks or five days. And I'm just looking at them like, are you kidding me? What, that was a waste of time. <laughs> like, that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, I think the most frustrating thing about some of that is just, well, for one, there's like so many limitations with how much you can actually look at with any one study that, it's like you, at the end of the day, you got to try to kind of pick one or two questions to answer. And then inevitably there's going to be a whole bunch of people who want to know why you didn't answer a hundred other ones. <laughs> and then the other part of it too, is especially with like kind of the keto, uh, high fat, low carb stuff is, uh, like you said, like you can turn, you can flip the switch on your fat ox rates pretty quick, but what you probably can't do is overhaul your diet two or three weeks before a key competition, expect that to go well. And when I look at some of these studies, they say, oh, well, we tested the fat ox rates of these the keto athletes and um, that did it for like three weeks, two weeks or whatever it was. And they were really high. They were way off the charts, which is great. It shows that you can manipulate that with diet. But what it doesn't answer is this question I have, which is like, as a coach, I would never tell an athlete to overhaul their diet two or three weeks before a competition where we were judging performance. And, you know, cause that, that's yes, just not going to work. <laughs> I agree with that. And I do have one exception as a coach with mm -hmm. that is that, uh, you know, if you work with high school athletes, you know, that they're very hard headed and hard to reach sometimes, <laughs> but <Yeah>. wonderful. <laughs> and that, that they also can be sponges for information and they can learn. And so, um, before a major meet, if they haven't already, I really drill into them not to consume as much sugar. And that really has a great effect. So like, you know, cut out the soda, cut out, you know, the, the cake or something like that. I found that that really helps my athletes very quickly. So I would say that would be the only diet change that mm -hmm. I 100% have them do, you know, right before a competition. Otherwise, as far as changing their whole adaptation or the carbohydrate fueled or meat fueled, that sort of thing. No, of course, I'm right on the same page as you. You can't do that. Yeah. And that's, I think that, I guess there's probably some high schoolers where if you remove soda, you're removing a massive portion of their dietary intake. But like for most people, if you like, you just like remove like a few things or replace a few things with better options, you're making tweaks at that point versus telling someone who's been high carb their whole life to switch to keto and in two weeks expect the best performance of their life or vice versa either. Um, exactly. And I think that's where it gets, 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 it just gets complicated. I mean, I, I feel bad for folks in nutrition research and, you know, the, that stuff, because I think it's probably one of the more complicated things to really get right or get an actual concrete answer to, because there's just so many variables that, that, that we don't know about. And then even the ones we do know about, they're almost impossible to control all of them. So it's, uh, it, it's like, we always have to like, it's why I like the individual approach um, to coaching versus kind of the group mentality or like the nutritional one sheet is what I call it. Like, like, you know, like I could just give everyone a nutritional one sheet and say, this is what you got to do. Cause this is what the science says. But, and I might, I might hit a home run with, with a handful of athletes that that happens to work for, but then I'm going to have a few where it doesn't. And then I'm going to feel bad 
because they're banging their head against the wall wondering why they're different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I yeah, think, I think I, it's like an 80, 20, I think you can, I think there's a formula for 80, like 80% of people to thrive. That's what I really believe. And I believe it's animal protein based. I definitely don't think, you know, there, some people will say, well, Hey, well, vegan can work. You know, it, it can work for a short period of time for an athlete, but it's in my opinion that it's not going to work for a long period of time. And I think that 80% of people will thrive from an animal protein based diet and uh, they'll thrive for longevity and they will thrive for good aging biomarkers, which is what I look like you look at for my clients, even my young Olympians who are in their twenties, I'm looking at not only how can they perform at their best, but how can they perform now and not be, have Alzheimer's later? You know, I generally am concerned about their overall well-being. So I like to work with them on the biomarkers as well. And so I think it's 80, 20, I think you could probably give 80%, you know, reach 80% and then you're going to have that 20% that needs something different. And I work, do that with my metabolics too, um, whether it's online, over the phone, or in person. Um, I assess someone based on their symptoms. Like I give a long, drawn-out interview. Um, and I find that, so like, you know, some people come to me and they're 100% carnivore and they still are having maybe hormone issues or they're having sleep issues or something like that. And I can pretty much read the pattern now and figure out what's wrong with them and what they're deficient in and what's going on. Now, when I do my actual analysis where I measure... I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's like we measure 14 different places of where you store your body fat. And the ratio in between those places tells us um, things like how your liver's functioning, thyroid, if you're eating too much sugar, if you're carbohydrate tolerant, all kinds of things. And then from there, I can pinpoint an individual program for that person. So I also love individual coaching. But I think if I, you know, when I'm giving a blanket statement to my high schoolers or in general to people who are looking to, feel better and they're just average, you know, sedentary, maybe non athletes, I think that 80% of them at least will do better with a um, increasing red meat for one thing in their in their eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it, a, a lot of folks increasing red meat could be coming almost from none. So it's like, you know, now with with where the recommendations are at with that. So it's, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, you, you get you get like, you, you go from it's one thing I think like to have someone who is already eating a lot of red meat and say eat more red meat versus someone who's eating basically no red meat and tell them just to enter it into the diet in terms of like kind of where people are coming from. But, uh, the thing I find interesting too, that I use, I did a, I did a, a Q and a episode, uh, before this one where one of the, one of the listeners actually asked about like, kind of what is your protocol with, uh, you know, recommending nutrition to your athletes. And, you know, for me, it's like, it's maybe a little different like thing to navigate just because I'm a, I'm a endurance coach primarily. And then like, you know, I'm not a dietitian or a doctor or anything like that. So like, I tend to not like, just say like, this is what you got to do to a lot of my clients. A lot of times I let them come to me with that. And then I come with a couple options and I kind of explain like, well, here's the benefits. Here's the pros and the potential cons to this approach. Here's the pros and the potential cons to this approach. And then once we have maybe two or three different things to choose from, I love it when they kind of pick the one they think is going to work best for them first. And then we try it. And if it doesn't, we can always go to a different option. But I think one thing I learned as a teacher was that like, when you give people options to pick from, they're going to gravitate to the one they think is going to work. And they're going to be much more willing to change if it doesn't. Cause at that point, the power's in their hands 
And once the power's in their hands, they're, they want a solution versus what they think is going to work or what they think I'm telling them to do. So I don't know. It's, it's, it seems it worked well with middle schoolers and high schoolers. And so far it's worked well with, with individual endurance runners too, but uh, it's, 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 good. it's a good strategy if you have time for that, you know, right. if you have, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Well, like and not, it, there's not some major thing coming up quickly mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. If you have time to work with them. Yeah. For sure. And if I, and if I were a nutritionist and someone was coming to me specifically primarily for that, then, then I may be in a different category where like they're leaning on me for answers versus like, you know, I already drew you up a great training program, which is what you paid me for to do technically. And then like, you know, the, the nutrition stuff is a little more of a, I guess like a, an accessory or an add on to, mm-hmm. to that side of things that w- where I'm more qualified in from the training methodology standpoint, I would think. So like, I think there's gotcha. a, but, but you know, like, yeah, like if, if someone said like, if I were a nutritionist and someone came and said, I want you to draw me up a meal plan, I could, I, I might not be able to get away with, uh, rolling out tons of options. Cause they're going to, at some point say, what am I paying for? You're just telling me to make the decisions. here. <laughs> yeah. So I'm probably the opposite. I work mostly with metabolics clients and then I do the strength coaching as well for some, but my main thing is um, basically telling people what to eat it for their individual optimization. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of what, where, you know, I am so inspired by the place that I live. Um, I get tons of vitamin D from this beautiful Island and that's part of, I'm always, about choose your environment. You know, no one's making you live where you live. Um, You choose to live there based on your priorities, of course. But, um, you know, I choose to live in a place where I can get lots of vitamin D. I can train all year round. And, um, you know, I raised my family in a great place. The sense of community here is outstanding. And um, I have a real, like, spiritual connection to Maui. And I think a lot of that is um, inspired by the ancient Hawaiian kukini runners. And um, I think I mentioned this to you in uh, an email I sent you, but I just finished writing uh, a book draft uh, and about my experiences and basically giving a a kind of a three-step approach to how the average person can optimize. And the first one is eating to spark neurotransmitters for your mind. The second part is learning how to sprint. And we can get into that too about BDNF. And then the third part is your, uh, your spirituality. So giving back to your community, being grateful, that sort of thing. And at the beginning of each section, I tell a story about an ancient Hawaiian kukini runner. And so a kukini was a messenger for the king. And the king would send these runners across the island to deliver messages. Um, maybe that war was coming or sometimes they'd send them to the fish pond to fetch, to fetch their favorite fish that sort of thing. But the interesting thing about these kukinis were that, and of course they were warriors as well. A lot of battles going on in ancient Hawaii and, and uh, they needed to be fast to sprint. They talk about this a lot in ancient Hawaiian texts. They needed to be fast to sprint across the battlefield to meet their enemy. And they needed to be fast to run from their enemy. <laughs> in addition to that, they needed to be able to run far, sometimes, you know, a hundred miles, something like that. Uh, to run these um, messages for the kings and they were greatly revered and I thought it was really really interesting going through and finding these real life superheroes that are inspirational to me and finding okay what did they eat well there's a really carbohydrate rich um, staple in Hawaiian society called poi and um, it comes from the taro root and guess what they weren't allowed to eat poi these kukini runners had a diet of mostly animal protein. And that would be um, their primary food was what they called rare cooked chicken. 
and um, also fish, plenty of fish, and then after that, vegetables. So there was no carbohydrate, this, no carbohydrate, that. Yeah, they got carbs from the vegetables and probably a little bit from their sweet potatoes. But other than that, they had a major animal protein diet. And as I'm reading the different recounts of the battles and um, how fierce these warriors were, they talk about, uh, like, so Kamehameha the Great, who united the islands, seven feet tall, 300 pounds of solid muscle. And guess what? He wasn't even the tallest. They were 10 feet, 11 feet tall, the ancient Hawaiians. They were absolute superheroes. And so they are getting ready for their battle. He's, he goes to prepare his warriors. And what does he talk about in the book? Or what do they talk about in the book? They talk about he fed them plenty of meat. So I think it's amazing that even back then they're recognizing, and this is in the, uh, let's see, Kamehameha is like, you know, in the uh, 17, 1800s. So like, or ancient Hawaii would be like 1100 to uh, the 1800s. So they're really, really um, pushing their genetics to the superior beings on a animal protein based diet, which I thought was really interesting. And it definitely gives me a lot of inspiration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that is, I I love reading some of that stuff from it, because you get a get a really good look into kind of like, well, what did what did people do back then? Or what did they find interesting to report on? Because I mean, essentially, we probably get a real small snapshot as to like kind of what they're doing to some degree. So what, what, what did they decide was important to pass on to the next generation and the generations after that? And with no food company telling them what to say. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Just their own experience. And you said you were doing that for a book you're writing then or. Yeah. So I just finished the book and, um, And it's, yeah, it's basically an inspirational guide to, uh, you know, making yourself into the best superhero that you possibly can be. And uh, it's with a publisher right now, but um, I'll see which direction it goes. It should be out in a couple of months. Uh, Awesome. Yeah. And then the neurotransmitters are a big deal too, you know, eating to spark your acetylcholine and dopamine. And we can probably talk about that all day because so many people are dopamine deficient from screen time and junk food and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And you need that dopamine for your race. You know, a lot of times people say to me like, oh, well, you have such a strong finish on your 400. Um, and I said, well, you know, one, of course, I train for that. But two, um, I have that fat adaption helping me, that fat and protein adaption. So I'm not just running out of the carbohydrate fuel like that. Um, I have that longevity, again, in my running in order to keep that energy going so that I'm able to finish strong. And then the third part is I really pay attention to my neurotransmitters. So I really try to conserve my dopamine and make sure I'm dopamine dominant so that I can uh, access that dopamine when I see the finish line uh, because they've done a lot of studies and they've tested, but is it a physiological response or is it a neurotransmitter response? And you can actually get extra energy from a neurotransmitter response as opposed to a physiological response, if you can follow me with that. So you see the finish line and you kick that's a neurotransmitter response. And you want to have that neurotransmitter available for that response. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I like to think that that's also part of it, that I'm able to, you know, just really either maintain or not decrease as much speed and really stay strong in my, my form and my, um, you know, at the end of my race. And as I age, that's extremely important as well for a master sprinter to be able to um, have that, I guess you'd say, Okay, so we're going to lose speed and muscle mass as it is. So in my training, we do a lot of strength work, strength endurance, uh, you know, speed endurance, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting stuff. I think uh, like just it's one of those things where like the more you go down 
and look into that stuff, you just find like three new things to look at for every one thing you discover and it just keeps spiraling. So it's, uh, it's really interesting stuff. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you too, uh, relative to kind of your training program was what type of, what type of stuff do you do for the strength work stuff? So one, when I got into endurance sport, one thing I learned after a while, when I started getting more curious about what to be doing in the weight room, or if there was a reason to be in the weight room as an endurance athlete was, uh, you know, you look at most endurance athletes, I think in the gym and they're over by the tiny little dumbbells or by the body <laughs> weight stuff. And, and, uh, I've been educated on body weight stuff though, too, because apparently you can get really strong doing that. But, um, one thing I found interesting about a lot of the more updated kind of current endurance strength training programs is they're not shying away from heavy things. We're looking at things between like three and 10 reps in a lot of cases. So, uh, is that kind of similar with, uh, with the 400 meter and your program? Are you doing a lot of heavy, low repetition stuff or are you doing, what is the um, kind of strength training program that you like? Well, um, the way Charles developed his programs, you train for the area that your competition is in. So my, you know, there's hypertrophy, there's uh, strength endurance, and then there's um, endurance. And so if I were your strength coach, I would be having you do uh, three week to four week cycles of different uh, endurance type workouts, maybe with a little bit of strength endurance mixed in, but I'm primarily strength endurance. I'm definitely not hypertrophy because there's no need for me to carry around large muscles that are all show, no go, you know, like a bodybuilder. So that's not my cup of tea either. That's, it's going to be right in the strength endurance category, which is generally um, it's, it's like a formula. So it's hard to really explain exactly what it is, but you know, I have like A, B, C, D um, exercises and then the reps, the sets go down, the reps go up generally, I would say. And so um, I'm starting with my complex movements first. I do a lower body day and then I do an upper body day on the next one and then a lower body. And I actually do strength train four times a week. So I run three times a week. I strength train four times a week um, because there are, it's about 30% greater results if you move from three times a week to four times a week. Um, so I think it's specific to the individual. I think what, what's important for endurance runners for strength training is to make sure that you're fixing imbalances. So doing a lot of unilateral work to begin with is really important for any type of runner um, to make sure one side is not overcompensating for the other. And I mean, it's, it's almost like speaking a whole new language. So it's really hard to consolidate it into one general piece of advice. But um, as far as lifting short, like three reps, yeah, maybe closer to my season, but I stay within, I'd say, you know, four reps to 10 reps max. And then um, a big part of our training is tempo. So uh, one part of my book, I say uh, a couple of times that, you know, you, one of the ways to be fast is to go slow, go slow starting to sprint and go slow in lifting weights. Now that means the tempo on the eccentric is slow. So if I'm squatting, I squat maybe four seconds down. Um, recently to improve my reaction time, which is one of the things I need to work on, I have a, a pause at the bottom. So it's anywhere between two and four seconds. So if I'm squatting, I'll go maybe three seconds down, pause two seconds at the bottom, and then push up in one. Now the velocity of the bar, this one is hotly debated as well. A lot of people love to argue with me about this one, but the velocity of the bar on the way up, everybody thinks you need to lift fast to be fast. But Charles always said, um, no, it's the intention. So just because you're 
pushing the bar, maybe your intention is to move the bar fast, which is what you want, but it might not be moving fast because you have too much weight on it. So as long as your intention is to move the bar fast, then yes, it will make you faster, but it doesn't have to actually move fast, which is something that a lot of people love to say, you know, oh no, you have to lift fast to be fast. No, actually tempo training recruits way more muscle fibers and it makes you overall stronger. So Mm-hmm. Um, I could go on about this all day. <laughs> it's a long topic, but yeah. yeah. Do, so uh, I guess it, it's a formula for what your goal is. And that was a, um, a specialty of uh, Charles. Yeah. Does the going down slower versus like the going up on like, you know, for like squats or deadlifts and stuff like that, does that help reduce like the, the soreness the following day then too, or? Um, reduce the soreness. No, I wouldn't say that. I'd say, the soreness has to do with what are you, what are you intaking for recovery? So, hmm, no, I don't think that that's, that would be a correlation. I think what it does is recruit more muscle fibers and it gives you an overall greater sense of strength. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, it's, this has been a, a fun, but also you don't have to, the other thing about that is that you don't have to risk injuring yourself as much, especially as a master's athlete. You don't necessarily want to be piling on all the weight for one rep max or two rep max and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. With the tempo, you can, um, you know, recruit more muscle fibers, become stronger, but use less weight. So you actually have uh, less risk of, of getting injured while you're lifting, which I think is very important for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one oftentimes gets overlooked, I think, just because like, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not as easy to paint a, a really cool picture when you're talking about like, just being sustainable within your program in order to eliminate the potential downtime that you could have from an injury and stuff like that. You get a little more of the kind of go big or go home mentality, which may work for a couple of weeks. But then if you get hurt, then you know, you got to account for however long it takes you to recover from the injury you acquired from, from going too big or too big too early anyways, maybe, because that's a relative statement to begin with. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, there was one other thing before we jump off. Yeah. Um, I do encourage sprinting in my book as the, I think a lot of people, especially women around the age of 40, tend to start to train for marathons to get in shape. Would you say that's the, like a, something that you've come across too? They turn 40 and they think, okay, I'm going to train for a marathon. Yeah. So in my book, I'm saying maybe actually sprinting might be a better way to uh, increase your biomarkers for aging or, you know, Mm -hmm. have healthier biomarkers for aging. Um, Some of the research has shown that, for instance, uh, sprinting increases your BDNF, BDNF, which is brain derived neurotropic factor. And what it is, is it's increasing the plasticity in your brain more so than endurance training. So sorry, I hope I'm not being offensive to you. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. If you, if you want to, you know, simplify the headline, sprinters are smarter. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let the title of this episode. Sprinters are smarter. Endurance athletes stay away. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the BDNF, they, uh, it was like 20% greater learning capacity after sprinting than after endurance training uh, when they tested the individuals. And then also it makes uh, relieved anxiety and depression more than endurance running. So for aging, depression, um, making sure your brain stays plastic, which, you know, keeps your brain large and thwarts things like Alzheimer's, um, that sort of thing. I think that sprint will say ne- not necessarily replacing endurance training, but I think that sprinting needs to be uh, recognized as an option 
for older people. And I think it's not really widely known that it's not that hard to start sprinting. And so it's my purpose in my book to introduce this in a very friendly way and um, offer you know, some simple workouts to start sprinting. I put a dynamic sprinting warm-up video. Like I tell people, hey, just do the warm-up for a month. Like you really start slow so you don't hurt yourself, of course, which should be the case in any kind of running training, whether it's marathon or anything else. Um, and then I have some really great people who have contributed workouts to the book, um, like Otto Bolden and um, my favorite 400-meter runner, Phyllis Francis, and some other professional athletes, as well as master's athletes that are 80 years old and running. So there's no excuse at what, for what age you are, you can start sprinting at any age. My, my ladies I run with are Rose Green and Krista Bordinon. They're 83 and they're sprinting everything from the 60 to the 400 and they're amazing. So, uh, yeah, so I really want to encourage people to, you know, try to really tap into their superhero self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's true when they say it's never too late. You see those examples out there. And I think it's, that, that's maybe one of the the benefits of the the social media and stuff is that you have access to seeing some of those stories and some of those people too. Cause I know like, it seems like every year now, I'll at least a couple times a year, I'll see something like that pop up where there'll be, Oh, someone just broke the 90 year old, like hundred meter dash record or something like that. And it's just like so fascinating to see that and, and promising too. Um, yeah. But they're the, running at a hundred years old. Like they're not even yeah. walking, they're running. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh huh. Yeah, we can we can hope hope to be there. It's, it sounds like your your trajectory is heading that direction. So uh, we'll we'll check in 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 fifty some odd years and see how All you're right. doing. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> uh, cool. No, awesome, Cynthia. I think it was uh, it was great to have you on. It was cool to I guess for me hear your story for the second time before our listeners maybe the first if they are not already following you. Uh, but if you do have, I know you mentioned your book, but. There must be other areas for folks to follow along for you on social media or websites, if you don't mind oh, yeah. sharing. Yeah, I post quite a bit on Instagram, and my um, handle for that is at fastover40, the number 40. Um, and I have a YouTube channel as well. I think it's called, yeah, it's MAM, M-A-M. It's my name as well, Cynthia Monteleon. But um, MAM is my company, Metabolic Analytics of Maui. Um, and I have a website, mam808.com com or it's 808 actually so but mostly instagram i'm pretty active on instagram awesome well i'll definitely put links to all of that stuff in the show notes so folks if you want to check out what cynthia is up to follow along please do that and uh, find the links in the, in the show notes but otherwise thanks a bunch for taking some time out of your day cynthia thanks for having me i really appreciate it mahalo hey folks human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.